introduction to 1 Kings this evening. The two books of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, are really one in the Hebrew Bible, and they did not split them until <clears throat> the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint. Now, we'll hopefully get to verse 14 tonight, <clears throat> but I think book introductions are vital to understanding what God wants to say to us from any particular book or letter in the Bible. And I always try to spend some time on the introduction. It's not just uh, historical facts. They have everything to do with what God wants to speak. Together, these two books of Kings, as we know them, cover practically the entire period of the Jewish monarchs. Of course, it does not give us the story of Saul and just a little bit of David, but after that, all the way from Solomon to Zedekiah. About 400 years of history uh, in these books. And remember, when we say history concerning the Bible, we mean uh, spiritual history, uh, not simply what happened with humans. Now, First Kings, mainly... Uh, concerns itself with events in the life of Solomon, and then we get the prophet Elijah. And when we get to Second Kings, it tells the story of the continuing story of the monarchs, but then we meet the ministry of Elisha, Elijah's student, his protege. He then becomes the center of attention, and then the fall of Jerusalem. Now, that's just a, an abbreviated overview of the two books. The historians who compiled these records that we have of the Jewish kings had available to them documents which are now lost to us, but they contributed to what had to be said according to the Holy Spirit. The missing books that we know of are Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. You see, we have the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, but we don't have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. The Acts of David, which was uh, done by, by Nathan the prophet, as well as the Acts of Solomon, also done by Nathan the prophet. The prophecy of Ahijah and the visions of Edo the seer. These books contributed to what we have in First and Second Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, but they're, they're gone. From those more detailed documents, the Holy Spirit himself preserved those things of substance to him and therefore to us. If the Holy Spirit says, you know, I, I know there's some good stories, there's some very good things, but we can't let this thing just go on forever. We've got to narrow it down. And I have to leave you with the facts that will exalt the Father and equip the saints. Edification. So we are left without details, yet with strength and essential facts enough to know God better and therefore to serve God. I mean, that's what it's all about. There's no Bible study worth going to if it doesn't have a spiritual feature that belongs to it. There must be some connection to the throne of God every single time we open our Bibles. Or else why bother? You get that from a newspaper or something. 
The facts that contribute to shaping our understanding of God are essential. And we want them. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is so, that covers such a wide area of our existence that we can't wait to see it happen. The problem is, for us, is that suffering belongs to growing in Christ. is no way around it. We learn to make suffering work. None of us should be looking to suffer. We're looking to get the job done, and that will require, like it or not, pain. So the question, the question that I would ask myself and you this evening and those of you listening online, where is your personal trust in Jesus Christ? In a world increasingly global and comfortable without him, where is your personal trust in Christ? Has it dimmed over the years? I'm sure it has. But what is your response to that? Do you take care Enough of your faith to get that light going when it needs to go, to shine bright, to be a beacon to the lost. Every book of our Bible is written to tell us to trust God based on what God has said. And no matter what, it's not conditional. It's not trust God if it is trust God. No matter what others believe or disbelieve. I believe, as did Elijah who never stopped believing in the Lord, no matter what. No matter what his colleagues were doing, no matter what he thought everyone else was doing, Elijah believed in God, and the same is true of the prophets. Even Solomon, Solomon who so blessed and yet so weak. Solomon writes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Amen, brother. I agree with that. In fact, I want to agree with that with enthusiasm. I can't always do that. There are just sometimes I'm just beat down. But I still know it in my head, in my heart, and in my hands. I can still open my Bible and know that I'm supposed to love this because it is right even if I don't feel like it. These books of the Bible, they have warmed my heart from my childhood and into my manhood. Because there's nothing like it. Revelation 22.6 is so meaningful to us. These words are faithful and true. That's right from the throne of God. John, I don't want you to miss this. I've been saying this since... In the beginning, God created. And I'm saying it right up to the end. These words are faithful and true. No matter what a global humanity is doing without God. And humanity is achieving so much. We are more comfortable in this time in human history more than ever before, globally speaking. But if you took, if you took ants in a colony... And in that colony, you had ants that could really come up with some clever inventions and some fascinating discoveries and, and cures for sickness and all these things that the ants could do. But they rejected the Creator. Well, what would it matter? 
But if in that colony you had ants that said, well, I can't do all those things, I can enjoy many of them, and I certainly love the, the medical achievements, but I know who my Redeemer is. I know who I am before my Redeemer. I know I need to be redeemed. That's humanity. It doesn't matter if it's found in ants or monkeys or whatever it is. The point is, there is a God. We know his name. We know his nature. We know enough about him to move forward in our faith and be a witness for Jesus Christ without shame or hesitation, no matter what. Learning from kings, the spiritual prosperity of a people rises or falls according to the character of their ruler. That's one of the great lessons from the books of Kings and Chronicles, that the character of the people rises or falls based on the character of the king, the ruler. That's influence, and that's also being susceptible to someone else rather than God when it fails. And, and we see that in the people when they lined up behind the wicked kings and abandoned God, when they turned to idols or other peoples. And so this, these books of kings illustrate for us the important principle that obedience is a condition of blessing. To be blessed by God, I must pursue obedience. And we know also from the kings that when the kings fail to obey, not because of their disregard for God, but because of their weakness, God still blessed them. David said, blessed is the man who God does not impute iniquity. If God should number our sins, none of us would stand. This in contrast to the wicked ones. And I get strengthened by that. I know my God is not petty, and I know he is holy and he is pure. And I want to tell people about this, and I don't want to lose that as the years go by. A disinterest in sharing Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why Christ doesn't give us so much the chance to share Jesus with people, because we're not excited about sharing Jesus with people. I don't, each individual has to examine that for themselves. These books are beyond history books. The repetitive commentary on the behavior of the sinful kings begins to clue us into this. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we hear that refrain 23 times, no less, between 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The spiritual feature of the books exalt the Lord and they condemn sin. And that's what makes them spiritual. They exalt the only true God, and they condemn everything against him. And it doesn't apologize. Sin is an offense against God. And without addressing sin as sin, it is just a history book. That's all you're left with. But it does address it, and that's why it's rejected by the world. Proverbs fourteen eighteen: The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge presupposing that that individual has a right relationship with God, with Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ in the New. According to that Proverbs, the sons of wicked fathers did not have to be wicked themselves. They could inher inherit the folly if they chose to, or they could be crowned with knowledge. It was up to them then, and it is up to individuals to this very day. Imagine an American history book 
inserting such comments about American presidents and politicians as this. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of Jesus Christ. That would make those books spiritual, would it not? But they don't do this. If the history book said, and he did not take away the abortion clinics, and he did not stand against homosexuality, and he did not assist Israel against nations who have demons for gods, he did not uphold the righteousness of the Bible, he did not believe in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived without sin, crucified, risen, and enthroned, and coming again. That would make our history books spiritual. But they don't do that. But our books of kings do. Our books of history do. Joshua and Ezra and Nehemiah. All of them. All of the Old Testament. The prophetic books. The poet, poetical books. The prophets, they all speak about the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and God's response to that. And if it did not do that, there would be no such thing as Old Testament sacrifices, which God speaks to us from the Old Testament, telling us there is a sacrifice coming, not the blood of bulls and goats that will take away the sins of man. So from Samuel through Kings, we have the entire history of the Jewish monarchs, from Saul to Zedekiah. Under Solomon's rule, who will first come to in 1 Kings, Israel rose to the peak of her material glory. It was her golden age. However, Solomon's zeal for God diminished in latter years, as most of us are aware. Pagan wives turned his heart away from intolerance towards fake gods. Well, what a lesson there is for us there. Because Satan is still trying to get us to become more tolerant of anything that goes against God's word. Just try to uphold the scripture in a church to give the teaching of God's word center attention, and you will find people in that church dispatched from hell to interfere with the uninterrupted preaching of God's word. We should expect it, and we should be ready for it, and we should fight against it. We should be intolerant for those things that diminish God's word. We can do that and still love. We can do that and be kind. We can do that and be friendly, but we must do it. Instead of caving in all the time, giving in because we want people to attend the church. The only people a church should want to attend a church are the people the Holy Spirit is bringing there. That's always been the case. And in the Old Testament, these people were to be circumcised, the men, of course, in their hearts. All of them were to be circumcised. Men and women alike were to have upon their hearts this emblem of distinction that they believed in the God of Abraham and everything he said and did, as through Moses and the prophets. I love the Bible. I love God's word. It's not always been easy. Sometimes it's been very hard to love God's word because God, his, his methods, his permissions are, don't always line up with, with my happiness. But by faith, I still stand as a Christian man, as a believer. The key verse in this book of Kings, approaching them as one book, 
in the ninth chapter, the first seven verses of chapter nine, really lay it out. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that Yahweh appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I gave them, And this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Isn't that not powerful? God is saying, look, let me just be clear about this. Love me, serve me, and nobody else. And you will be blessed. And if you don't, these are the consequences. And that's exactly what happened. The consequences. The blessings were here and there. With the good kings, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, for example. But in the end, the people, they wanted something more from their God. They wanted something fake, something that people made up, something without a basis. And this is going on to this very day in humanity. Israel's kings were not to be like the kings of the other nations. Israel's kings was to write a copy in their own hand of the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 17 lays this out for them. Two kingdoms of disobedient people grew indifferent to God's precepts and his prophets, making the north, northern and southern kingdom, which both eventually fell. And so for us, the lessons abound. United Kingdom under Solomon. The divided kingdom largely because of Solomon. There are lessons in that. There are lessons for parents. There are lessons for individual Christians, for pastors, for all of us. This first chapter, uh, this is a long one. and It's filled with palace intrigue and drama. It opens on a low moral level. First Kings opens with the Hebrew nation in its glories and glory, and Second Kings closes with the nation in ruin. And we get these warnings in this very first chapter. And we are to have the same approach to these things as did the prophets. Everybody else may turn away from you, O Lord, not me. And that's why we applaud it so much when we hear Joshua make that. Great proclamation of faith as for me and my house. Well, here in this first chapter, the ugly fruit of polygamy. 
from the eastern harems is the catalyst for all these problems, the jealousy and the bitter ambitions from such households. The Bible does not uphold polygamy. It condemns it. It just lays out the story and say, you be the judge because you can't be that stupid. Here are the facts. Here are the results. What do you think? And yet there are still those fools that somehow try to justify it from the Bible. In this first chapter, we have David in his old age. Adonijah, David's eldest surviving son, setting himself up as king. Nathan and Bathsheba together appealing to David to deal with him. Solomon then being anointed king and Adonijah spared and the, the, the story just continues. So, so that's the introduction to the kings. We look now at the first verse. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Well, the title kings comes from that first, the second word, now King David. That sets the pace for everything to come. He is 70 years old at this point, and uh, circulatory problems. He was old and cold, and he just couldn't get his body temperature up. His faith was uh, failing. He was frail, but not his mind. Uh, I believe he has a, a sort of rebounds towards the end where he gives Solomon instructions on the temple and kind of uh, some key points about his own preparation for the temple and what God did for him. But at this point, in whatever season it is, he's struggling to stay warm. Um, that's a sickness. I mean, it's painful. You just can't get warm. What can you do? You're shivering all the time. Teeth knocking up against each other. Verse 2. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a woman, let a young woman, <clears throat> a virgin, be sought for our Lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the king may be warm. Well, these are likely his physicians, and they are very much concerned. They are looking for a solution, and this is the one they came up with. This woman would be a nurse attendant, for the king, and she would even be present with David during the king's court. That would make her privy to the business of the kingdom, so she had to be trustworthy, and and, uh, she, and as far as we know, she was. Uh, I, like, I want to open this up because I, I like how it all turns out. It says here in verse 2, And let her lie in your bosom that our Lord the king may be warm. <clears throat> Well, reading various writings about, ancient writings about these things, this was not an, this was in harmony with current practices. Josephus, who lived in the days of the apostles, he writes about this very practice. Later, Galen, the Greek physician, about 130 years after the birth of Christ, he was born and this was a practice that he did. It carried, continued into the Middle Ages. And so what I'm saying, this wasn't something that, you know, they just thought up. Uh, evidently, the elderly would, who struggled with being cold. If it, you know, we have a saying, a three-dog night. That means it's so cold, you don't sleep with one of your sleigh dogs. You sleep with three of them to get that body heat. And that's uh, what was going on with David. 
So, verse 3, so they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shulamite and brought her to the king. <clears throat> well, not just anyone would do. So they sought throughout the territory. Of all the maidens in Israel, it was Abishag to serve the king in this way. Of all the beautiful women in Persia, it would be Esther who won the king's heart for the people. Of all the foreigners surrounding Israel, it was Ruth who would be the great-grandmother to King David. And what an outstanding lass Ruth is to us. I mean, just her speech, you know, your God will be my God, your people will be, or you die, I will die. I mean, you just love Ruth doesn't tell us that she was physically beautiful. She was probably a plain Jane on the outside. But man, talk about the inward beauty. Ruth had it. And of all the maidens in Israel, it was Mary to bear the King Messiah. These are lessons for us. They count. They mean something. As I look at the heroes of the Bible, I don't say to myself, boy, if I could be like Paul, that would be painful. Ha ha. Uh, anyway, I, I say, what, how much can I be like them? In any given area of my life, how much can I be like them? What can I learn to, to not be impetuous like Peter? Uh, we'll be coming. Peter's still impetuous after the ascension. And he's, you know, he's going to make problems that God will just deal with, but not in a hard way. It's, God will actually incorporated into his will, even though it really wasn't God's will. You know, Peter, hey, I have a good idea. I need to take control. Let's do this. And God is saying, excuse me, but we'll get to that when we get to chapter, go through chapter one in Acts. Abishag the Shulamite. Shunem is where she was from. That's in Ishakar's territory. That is also where the wealthy woman who provided food and shelter for Elisha Uh, resided. Her son had been revived by the prophet. Uh, She was from Shunem. And uh, the the female heroine in the Song of Solomon is known as the Shulamite. We're told that in Song of Songs chapter 6. In verse 13, she was from Shunem. I believe that the Song of Solomon is a story play by Solomon uh, and the Sh- Abishag, the Shulamite, is the character he has in mind to tell the story. And for the New Testament church, we look at the story of, of this uh, uh, Abishag or the Shulamite, and we say this is the church so loved by the beloved and so sought by the world to be corrupted, but she, she makes it through. She never gives in to King Solomon. She ends up with her shepherd lover. And, and that is uh, the meaning, one of the great meanings from the Song of Solomon. Uh, Solomon, just, you know, taken by the Shulamite, likely, and writes this uh, Song of Solomon as we know it. And the Holy Spirit says, uh, I'll take that because I authored this and I have great purposes for it. And Solomon probably didn't even have a clue. Anyway, verse 4. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. 
the young woman was very lovely. Elsewhere translated uh, beautiful, as with Sarah and Esther, physically attractive by the standards of those days. And uh, her beauty is attested to later by Adonijah, David's elder son, because he's going to try to marry her, and it will, he will die trying. Uh, anyway, the Shulamite's beauty is also attested to in Song of Solomon in chapter 6. Apparently, she did captivate Solomon's imagination, and he wrote a love story around her, and uh, he may have even desired her, but uh, discovered she was just had too much integrity. It was chaste enough to really not be impressed by the king, and that's when you get the first chapter in the Song of Solomon. She's at the banquet, and she's just really not impressed. Anyway, uh, she is for a little bit, but not enough. She cared for the king and served him. She becomes David's nurse, but the king did not know her. It's a platonic relationship. David physically deteriorated at this point in his life, had no romantic interests, just wanted to get warm. That was his objective. And uh, the fact that he never had relationships with her, Adonijah takes as grounds, furnished grounds to try to marry her. As I mentioned before, uh, it, it, it was an, another attempt at the throne. Solomon sees through it and will have him executed. We get to that in chapter 2. But um, <clears throat> in these days of David's feebleness created this opportunity for Adonijah to exalt himself. And therein, lessons begin to percolate for us as a Christian. I mean, we say, well, you know, uh, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. We do not promote at all self-exaltation. And we see it personified in Adonijah. We've seen it in others too, but tonight we're talking about Adonijah. Verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. Hmm. Again, he is most likely David's oldest living son, and uh, next in line, therefore, for the throne, according to the custom. He wants to make this claim. David's moving too slowly on it. So he attempts to exploit David's weakened condition, uh, you know, again, David is, you know, his faculties are there, but he's preoccupied with trying to get warm. He's not really running the kingdom. Adonijah was the handsome dunce who learned nothing and died achieving nothing. And I don't want that to be lost on uh, any of us. He was the handsome dunce who learned nothing because what he is going to do has already been attempted by his brother Absalom, and it failed. How many people sit under good parents and good church and in good churches only to learn the opposite of good? You just scratch your head. You want to go upside their heads, but that doesn't work well with the Lord. But this is Adonijah. He had the lessons. He did not respect his father's wishes. He did not respect... God's revelation of who would succeed David through the prophet Nathan. He felt entitled to rule. 
History meant nothing to him. He couldn't learn. He just refused to learn. He's so arrogant, so self-absorbed and self-impressed that if, if it didn't help who he wa- wanted to be, he was not interested. Cowardly in that he waited until his father was too unhealthy to rebuke him, to make his move. He is an example of how none of us should ever be. Not just, hey, you young Christians, you shouldn't be this. None of us should be this way at any age. Without submission to God, there can be no mission for God. It's not tricky. It's not complicated at all. Unless you want to be on the wrong side of of events. Then you can go out and do whatever you do, but you're going to have to answer. It says here in verse 5, he exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Well, it wasn't his place to do this. And this is a practice that is often carried out by Christians in churches. It's not their place to do certain things, but they do it anyway, and they just create these problems for everybody else. He exalted himself, saying, I will be the ruler. Romans 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Yes, Paul is talking about civil government. Well, There's a civil government here in operation, too. And he is violating it. James chapter 4. God, speaking of God, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that ain't Adonijah. And I don't want that to be me. Peter, Peter really opens it up. He says, likewise, you younger people. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you believe that? Well, I used to believe it, but God took too long to give the grace that I was waiting for. Then you weren't humbled. God does take time and he does work mysteriously. Accept it and nothing you can do about it. You can't force the hand of God. You can side with it. The same self-promoting style that Adonijah is exhibiting here that the New Testament writers, as I just read, are warning against. That's the same style as Satan. Satan said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, there's nothing higher. He wants to put himself over God. Adonijah would also justify his coup by considering Solomon an illegitimate son. How convenient. He had decided that he's not a real prince. I am. They would do this with our Lord. They would throw into his face. And John makes sure it's recorded for us that he was born of a virgin. Yeah, we believe that. That's what the world's response was to this day. John. Chapter 8, Jesus speaking, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Well, they were wrong. Um, Spiritually, especially. But that's it. You know, we weren't born of fornication, Jesus. You, on the other hand, have this question mark on your life. Hmm. It says here in verse 5, He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him, just like Absalom. He repeats the same 
the identical mistake. Appearance meant more than character for him. Even to this day, that's a big deal with a lot of people. Appearance. Uh, What about when you go to church and you put on that Sunday best appearance? Well, if it's legitimate, if it's in, born in or built on integrity, you're genuinely trying to get it right. It's far better than being a fraud. Adonijah still needed the king's blessings to be king. We'll get that in verse 20. But he thinks that he's going to pull this off anyway. Verse 6. <clears throat> and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good-looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Well, he had been getting away with arrogant assumptions all of his life. Until now, he's simply arrogant. He doesn't even have the ability to stop himself, nor is he interested. That's why he wouldn't have the ability. This unchecked air of superiority will cost him his life because with that unchecked air of superiority comes a sense of entitlement that you are not entitled to. He won't let it go. When he is put down for this attempted coup, he's going to try it again. He He won't survive the second attempt. Parents who don't correct their children just let others suffer their children. It's unfortunate. Uh, everybody's got to, you know, okay, here's the brat, and what are we going to do? You can't, you know, you can't discipline somebody else's kid, not without a, a nuclear event. <clears throat> and so I hope our Christian parents will, you know, just some parents just can't seem to tell their little darlings no. when that's the very thing those little darlings crave many times and need. It doesn't have to be mean and vicious. You just know and you enforce your will. My will be done. In David's defense, he apparently is unaware of Adonijah's real intent. That comes out in verse 11 when Nathan brings it up to Bathsheba that David doesn't know this coup is going on. He probably knew some of the things that, he certainly knew some of the things that Adonijah was doing, and he should have nipped them in the bud, and he did not. But at this point, he's preoccupied again with not chilling. His mother had borne him after Absalom, meaning he was younger than Absalom, but not that they shared the same mother. Uh, Absalom's mother's name was Maaka, whereas Adonijah's mother is Hagith, a feminized form of Haggai. God is going to overrule this appointment <clears throat> That's in the mind of Adonijah. Verse 7. Incidentally, as we should know, it was already clear from long ago that Solomon was going to be king after David. The kingdom knew this. Verse 7. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. Hmm. Well, he knew who to go to. He thought he did. It didn't work. Joab, David's general, David's nephew, bloodthirsty, always ready to kill. Um, Abiathar, the priest, both men, really unwaving loyalty to David. Though, you know, Joab was Joab, but still, bottom line, he was loyal to David uh, up until now. There is no fool like an old fool. 
though young fools can rival them with the damage they do. Which would you rather deal with, an old fool or a young fool? Neither. They're, they're the same. It's just one is in, <clears throat> has had time to correct themselves and blew it. Proverbs 14.7, go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Well, how other, what other way should it be? Here are two fools, old and young. Uh, young Adonijah, well, more than two. Then you have Abiathar and Joab, the older fools. Abiathar the priest, he joined David when Saul had Doag kill the priest at Nob. He had been faithful to David all that time. And because of his commitment to David, he became one of David's advisors and friends. And yet, look at the loyalty. Loyalty is a big deal for us. I don't, you know, Christians think I'm saved. I don't, need, I don't need any virtues, some Christians think. I'm saved. Jesus loves me. Why do I have to be burdened with virtues? Who needs to be loyal? I don't see, if I see something that I don't care for, I just change teams. Yeah, that helps hell out so much. And uh, when, when Satan comes across truly loyal Christians, he comes against opposition that counts, that beats him down. And here, in this incident with Adonijah, Abiathar's first recorded act of disloyalty, disloyalty to what David had embraced, which was God's will through the revelation of the prophet Nathan. Uh, Abiathar knew the prophecy, he knew the will of God concerning Solomon. So why did he side against it? What is wrong with people who do this? They know better. It's not a little or subtle thing. This is very deliberate. It tells us there at verse 7, they followed and helped Adonijah. This is, again, calculated. A disobedient priesthood would contribute very much to satanically corrupted, uh, a satanically corrupted kingdom. If the priesthood is corrupt, then the salt of the earth is missing. Things that would thwart the work of Satan in the kingdom are out of the way if the priesthood... That's when, when Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. It's not a little statement. It's a huge statement. You represent to God Almighty other people through prayer and through service. Well, the converse is true also. An obedient pastor, it means a truer church. And that should mean a greater witness of the people. These men, Joab and Abiathar, they are supporting the unanointed. And they should both have known better. This is what troublemakers do. Instead of moving on, they nest and cause unrest, and that's what's happening in the kingdom. Uh, Adonijah had a good life. He could have had a happy life as a prince, very wealthy, in the position he held, the influence. Instead of using it for good, he uses it on himself. And it, it killed him. Verse 8, Then Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shemaiah, Rhea, and the mighty men who belonged to David 
were not with Adonijah. Yeah, now the music changes. Here's, you know, the, the, the A-team. It is not written that the faithful should be loyal, uh, disloyal. We'll correct that. It is not written that the faithful should become disloyal. There's no law that insists, you know what? You're going to be disloyal. Not so. And we see it in these men. They're not disloyal to David. Zadok was faithful to his God and to his king, no matter what his colleagues were doing. And Abiathar was the co-priest, high priest of Israel. Yeah, that might be Abiathar. That ain't me. This was the way with Elijah and the prophets, and this is the way it's supposed to be with us. Yeah, you can trade on what God's clear will is. I'm not going with you. Then Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada. We like Benaniah because he is an upholder of justice and he is loyal. He will execute Adonijah. He will execute Joab. And he will execute Shemaiah. Not the same one here in this verse, but the one that was hurling stones and insults at David when Absalom came against David. Then there's Nathan the prophet. Ever trustworthy as God's prophet to the king for the kingdom. It is our duty to row with men whom God is using. It is our duty to do this. It's not an option. Oh, there's, you know, there's some folks over there. God is working with them. And I'm just, I don't have anything to do. And I'm just going to keep doing nothing. It's your duty. If you, if you, you know, if, if you moved away and you found a church that was preaching the word of God, it is your duty to join and to row with them. And take some of the hits. Sometimes God is just sifting the flock. Make sure you land on your feet. Shemaiah and Rei, the identities are unknown. It says here, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Where would I have been on that day? I would like to believe I would have been with the mighty men. Loyal to the king. Have no reason not to be loyal. These men stood with David at his worst And they're standing with him to his death. These are the lessons that come off the Bible pages for us. It's not just a history story. It's anointed information. Cherry picked by the hand of the Holy Spirit. Preserved and delivered to us. And we have no excuse to say, Oh, I didn't know how I should behave under the forces of disloyalty. Oh, yeah, you did. Because the story's right there. And... We need, all of us, need to be reminded from time to time. Because things get blurry for us. That's what the emotions do. The emotions bring fog. We just can't see things. When those days happen to us, slow it down. Almost to a halt. And just let the Lord do what he is supposed to do. Take some of the hits. But, you know, Christians are so fragile. You hear me say this all the time. They get their feelings hurt and poof. Run away, retreat, wave the white flag, turn on others, justify your being meanness to others. Even me, sometimes something as pastor happens and I say, Lord, I'm not feeling the love. But I know where to go to and I know who to tell that I don't feel the love. Because he is the only one that can help me. And he does. And he always has and he always will. And I may be disappointed with a lot of things in this life, but I am sticking with my God. 
verse 9. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zehiloth, which is in Enrogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. Well, this little celebration is going to be very small compared to when Solomon is pronounced king. That's going to roar from from uh, the Gihon, the springs of Gihon. This is it's going to be nothing compared to that. And there's a lack <clears throat> of excitement behind Adonijah. There was this intellectual siding with him, but it, it, there's no mention of, of, of just uh, of the thrill of his appointment. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Joab, what's Joab going to bring? Well, I'll kill anybody if you need it. Uh, but other than that, he just doesn't bring it. And, uh, you know, they... The Spirit's not with them. It says, by the stone of Zehileth. Uh, the, the Hebrew word Zehileth means serpent or to creep. It was a landmark that must have resembled a serpent. Rather symbolic of the usurping nature of the serpent and what Adonijah was doing. Uh, he would not have seen it. We're supposed to see this. We're supposed to come to again our Bible and say, this is not just a history book. There are messages, there are types, there are lessons. And they're all over the place. I may not see them all. I, I can remember not maybe about a year ago reading a section of scripture in Isaiah and just not getting it. And it was a piece of, of section of scripture that I had known so well. And it was just, I can't get it. <laughs> I since have overcome that. But, it would, I mean, it's just, it happens. You, you keep, well, there's a whole lot of other Bible out there for me. No shortage. God, I don't know, humbling me. I didn't, you know. Thing is, I never feel like I need to be humbled. <clears throat> and Rogel, um, <clears throat> just outside Jerusalem, not too far from the Gihon, <clears throat> is where the spies, uh, Jonathan and Ahimeaz, had stayed when Solomon was, uh, uh, Absalom was chasing David out and they would funnel information back until they were spotted and then they moved on to another hiding place. But it was a source of water. Uh, some believed it was a spring there. It is a well at this point. But uh, anyway, this is, uh, he went to where the water was to coronate himself. And I say that because. Solomon is going to be sent to Gihon, where the real spring of water, the, the major source of water for Jerusalem is. And um, you go to Israel, you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, which is quite nice. Uh, I should add, if to go through the tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, there's no lighting in there. You have to bring a flashlight. And everybody else had these expensive lights. I had a pen light, and it was just as bright. It's like, look at that. This thing is a gift. I got it in the mail. And it gave me all the illumination they had. Uh, so that was just funny. I didn't tell anybody that. They would have killed me. But anyhow, verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the mighty man, or Solomon his brother. Well, this set Nathan into action. Uh, you don't leave him off the list. And they did. <clears throat> and leaving these trusted confidants is a great indication that Adonijah had uh, plans to usurp David. There was a plot. 
The fact that Solomon was excluded proves that Adonijah knew that Solomon was to be David's successor, and he wasn't going to let that happen. Well, he wasn't able to stop it. Not a lot of love in this home of polygamy. Verse 11. So, let's see now. We can make it to 14. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it? Well... Again, this is Nathan who wrote the biographies of David and Solomon and dispatched by God to correct David. Took a lot of guts to do that, to go to the king and put him down publicly over his sin. So we're not dealing with a a small character in Nathan the prophet. We are dealing with a real man of God. And after that had taken place, in the life of David and Nathan, their friendship continued. It wasn't like David's, you know, his feelings were hurt, and that's it, I'm done with you, Nathan. Not at all. What a grand testimony to both of these men. Their relationship thrived by dealing with something that was wrong and not ultimately sweeping it under the rug. David attempted to, and Nathan pulled the rug back. And so after these years, Nathan is not only welcomed in David's court, but he is trusted and his advice is valued. Uh, Verse 12, Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So Nathan, of course, he's talking to Bathsheba. David's not yet in the picture. And he's saying, listen, there's a coup going on to take the throne. That means they're going to kill you and Solomon. And this is what you need to do. His motives, Nathan's motives, was for the fulfillment of God's promise, which should be our motive also. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away, Jesus said concerning the word. I don't think that I've come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Well, Nathan is is determined to fulfill God's word. And he's looking out for the safety of Solomon and Bathsheba and for the good of the kingdom. His struggle was to keep God's will central. And that's what we see him doing. Uh, He believed the earlier message... That God loved Solomon. That was part of the message. The message that earned Solomon the name Jedediah, beloved of Yahweh. They believed this. And that gave Solomon special status among David's sons. And they weren't going to let anything happen to it. Verse 13. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me. And he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? (laughs) David, shivering, said, huh? Uh, (laughs) She knew that God spoke through this man, Nathan, as he's telling her what to do. Whether she liked what he said or not, these two had a history. And it was Nathan that called her out as a sinner too. He was a devout, godly man, and there was no way she was going to lose sight of that. Sixteen times he is known in the Bible as Nathan the prophet. You've got to love this kind of stuff. You've got to be able to see in the New Testament. Again, I've said this many times before. It's one thing to tell people that God loves them, but do you believe he loves you? Do you believe God loves you? 
And it doesn't stop there. If you think that God loves you, does God love the Christian that is really irritating you? I mean, these are the things you've got to work with. Oh, you don't have to, but it is in your interest to, to never give up on trying to be perfect like Jesus Christ, no matter what. To never give up. What can Satan do to that? Verse 14. Then while you were still... Uh, let me pause a minute. There's no, I don't think we have any kids. kids in, we do have some in the children's ministry. So we can keep like, going to like 10 o'clock. Okay. Back to verse 14. Then while you are still talking there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Nathan is not only devout, he's wise, of course. He's not only, he's devout, and because he's devout, he's courageous. And he is also wise. What a combination. I believe every Christian can have these virtues. Uh, but you got to work for them. Even if God gave you something, you still got to work. It's, it's not, it's the curse says the sweat of your brow, only by the sweat of your brow will there be fruit. It's a fact of life. So even when the Lord does it, okay, he does it. He just, you know, he, he, he fed the 4,000. Yeah, well, life goes on, doesn't it? There's still other stuff to do, and I've got to do some of it. And when you accept these things, they get so much easier. I've, I've just, you know, I just want to trust God all the time. That's my goal in life. One of them. Uh, anyway, here he says, the plan for Bathsheba, he says, you approach the king first. And we're going to do this on the strength of two witnesses. And you have to understand there is a present danger for your life. And David needs to know about this. And then, lest David think you are exaggerating the story, I will come in and I will back you up. I will bear witness to um, what you have said to David. I will confirm what you told him, dispelling any suspicion that this is overblown. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And we'll stop there for this evening. And we will pick this up next session if we're still here. Let's pray. Now, Father, may... Uh, Again, as just a simple and a request that needs to always be at the forefront. May we do something with the things you teach us to your glory, our edification. May it get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>